0: just do a quick snapshot recap so we can see how much the same we are as you find in Genesis 3 after the fall. First of all, we know that humans want to be God. In all of our sin and all of our rebellion, we want to be independent of, of, of someone telling us what to do we want to be independent. We want control. We want to be our little G-god and we justify our sin, much like Eve justified her sin. It's not a very outlandish or outright I intend to disobey God. It's it's a lot more subtle than that. It's actually in a consideration. It's asking ourselves questions. The enemy comes in and he asks us a few questions and we start to consider and we consider long enough that we actually believe that we could help God out. And so we don't have an evil intention in sin at first. We just want to be helpful to God, helpful to our spouse, helpful to our friend. And so we go into fix, and when we do that, we redefine the terms of good and evil based on our subjective reality. So we looked at that last weak in the tree of good and evil the reason that god did not want them to eat from the tree of good and evil was not because he was withholding goodness from them or love from them but because in love there is perimeter because he knew that if they saw good and evil they would rewrite the definition of what is good and what is evil based on their terms and not on the terms of absolute truth and they would distort it and in his love he said please don't eat of this trust me let me be the keeper of what is true and what is right and what is good and what is holy the enemy is going to use the same four words that he did in the garden as he does with us today did god really say question mark These will be the same four words that precede every one of our own choices to enter into a sinful relationship, a sinful thought life, a sinful behavior or pattern will be preceded by the same four words did God really say. And then we can look at any corner of our life and see, look at these uh, characteristics that we can find, and we know that there is something in this corner that does not yet believe God is good. And, and here's how you want to see the symptoms of something that doesn't believe that God is good you're gonna find pride you're gonna find shame and honesty remember that in the Old Testament nakedness was the equivalent to honesty or intimacy it wasn't so much about the physical body but a, but an honesty before the Lord you're gonna find blame it's always somebody else's fault and hiding this is what we saw in Genesis 3 the woman will now, in her femininity, struggle in pain and even the fear. I mean, the pain causes us to fear the fear of childbirth. And we will experience pain there. That's why there's 115,000 abortions performed in the U.S. every single day, every single day. Thank you, precious darling baby. right on cue women are scared women are scared maybe they are scared in their shame maybe they are scared in their hiding and in that fear women would battle their shame and in their pride they want to be the lead they want to be the guy they want to be in control and it would be Awfully difficult for us to submit to our husband because we want to be our husband. We want to be, uh, we want to subdue him, overpower him, exploit him in a way, with our sexuality, with our femininity. So now we see uh, women struggling to submit, to love, to give selflessly because of sin. Man in his sin will now work and he will battle. And I want to say this. I wrote this because I want you to see the battle that our men are fighting as the provider and protector. Remember, they're coming at life from a different place. They're dust, we're rib. So we're built different. We're wired different. We see the world different. And internally, in the DNA, the God code of man, they want to provide and they want to work and they want to protect. And, And if they've watched that done really poorly over their life, they have to relearn how to do that, but that feels very embarrassing for them. And then women have a tendency to gauge whether we're going to respect a man or not based on the product of their labor. So we, we respect to the degree of their performance. And we we overturn the way that God moves through our home and in our marriage. And so men will continually battle the self-reliance of earning and the self-exaltation of money and legacy This will be the tension for them They want to leave a legacy they want to provide for their home But it will be hard and it will be embarrassing and painful and they want to rely on their self So what is God to do? (laughs) What is God to do with all of us sinners as you can see the snapshot has not changed very drastically and god in his nature who he is in his love he is just therefore he must now judge sin how does he do that no different (laughs) no different than he did genesis 3 verse 21 what is the first thing god does For Adam and Eve in the midst of their sin in the midst of their doubt the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and he clothed them the very first thing God does is he goes in and he puts sacrificial covering sacrificial covering I want you to make a note this is the first time we see what in scripture not the first time we see provision but what the sacrifice yeah sacrifice We see an animal sacrifice because he had to mutilate and kill an animal in order to have the skin to cover this is incredibly meaningful and important that you see what is happening remember remember this is all for jesus there is nothing that god is doing or not doing that doesn't point to jesus It is a foreshadow of Isaiah 53. Isaiah would tell us in chapter 53, verse 7, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Who is the he that's being sacrificed like a lamb led to slaughter? Who is Isaiah prophesying would come? Jesus. You already see it. That's right. It's always Jesus. You can just answer that and we'll get around to it. You already see the foreshadow that there would be now a sacrifice of blood. When do you think Jesus was prepared for this sacrifice? We find the answer in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7, I got holy goosebumps all over me looking at the bookends. God is showing us how he loves us and covers us in our nakedness, in our sin, in our shame, through sacrifice. When was Jesus prepared for this sacrifice? And authority was given it. Okay, authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. The it, in this revelation context, is the enemy, the beast, the antichrist. So that's not incredibly relevant to exactly what we're saying, but that helps you understand the, pa- the passage, the it. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, that is the, the beast, the enemy, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. <laughs> Did you know the book of life had a longer title than just the book of life? When was the book of life written, according to Revelation 13? Before the? Wow, oh, goodness. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain. God already made a way for forgiveness and salvation before Adam and Eve sinned. So when you wonder how all the people in the Old Testament get to heaven, the same way that we get to heaven, through the sacrifice of the Lamb through his blood look at this is this not brilliant to you do you not just go oh my goodness genesis to revelation here's the story and then we would watch genesis three twenty three. therefore the lord god sent him out from the garden of eden to work the ground from which he was taken he drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So man and and woman are out, they are driven out by God from the garden, and he places a perimeter to the tree of life. Why does he do this? Why would he allow this? I mean, I look at it now and I go, he, he could have just wiped them out. Even this is grace. Even this is love. He allows them to work. He covers them. He allows them to be in love with one another and to be fruitful and enjoy the fruit of children and family. Look at what He's allowing them. Don't just look at what He's not. And, and, and the real reason this is grace is because He doesn't want them, They they now have a time stamp. They now cannot live forever because how painful and unloving of God to let a sinful mortal man live forever. So even our impending death helps us to find God. May I set you free. Don't be scared of death. Oh, Christian, don't be scared of death. Where is it, Sting? It's not there. It's not there because it actually helps us find our way to God. Knowing that I have a timestamp pushes me back to the Lord and His Word and His truth. And the things that I think are really a big deal are just not so much a big deal anymore. Because what what am I going to base it on? My sixty years of life, my seventy, eighty, ninety? If I <laughs> can keep this cancer thing reined in, I mean. I'm going to make decisions now based on 70 years of life. So I'm going to end my marriage based on 70 years of life. I'm going to let a guy take my virginity from me based on 70 years of life. I'm going to gossip about my friend behind her back based on 70 years of life. I'm not going to show up to church because I got my feelings hurt based on 70 years of life. Are you kidding me? This is not about 70 years. This is forever. Everything matters forever. And our time stamp of mortality should draw us back into the goodness and love of God. But it doesn't take long for man to create An idol of themselves not long at all actually from Genesis 3 to Genesis 6 here we go off the rails Genesis 6 5 the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually can you imagine every intention every thought now we know where our heart is, by the way. God was proving psychology well before psychology was on the scene. Our heart is a place of our mind, our mind in our prefrontal cortex that reasons and thinks and believes and hopes. It can be renewed, it can be held captive, it can be taken captive, it can be liberated, it can change, it can transform. And every intention and inclination of the, of the hearts of men was evil all the time. And the lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart and so the lord said i will blot out man whom i have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for i am sorry that i have made them this hebrew word for regret is very important that you know it's nakam that's how you pronounce it nakam it's very different than humans tend to regret. It's very different than humans tend to feel sorry. It is a compassionate sorrow. In the verb tense, it, it means that you sigh deeply. I think that's really beautiful language to think of God sighing deeply in his compassion, compassionate sorrow. It's one and the same. They're not opposing each other. And this is how God feels so i want you to see that it is the grief of god look at these very human emotions that our god is feeling (laughs) outside of eden we receive grace through the grief of god through his grief his compassionate sorrow for us his nakam for us but we believe his grace through our own grief Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor in the Hebrew is the same as our word grace. He found grace. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. You've got to see the momentum and the buildup. I promise this is going to make sense. Please understand that to be a righteous man does not mean that you are sinless. The Hebrew language, when when we see or read, Noah walked with God, That's our English is so sorry here. Um, Noah walked with God. You know what this actually means? Noah agreed with God. It did not mean that he was sinless. It meant that he agreed with God about his sin. And this is what made him righteous. Do you agree with God about your sin? Then you are righteous. You're not sinless. You're not without sin, but you are righteous in the eyes of the Lord because you're agreeing with God that you are sinful, and you are agreeing with God that you need his help. And here's the grace. In Noah's grief, he received grace. I want you to bump to Genesis chapter 8, 20, so you can see the response. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Will you please circle the word altar? This is very important. We're going to stick with this. Altar, covenant, and idol. These are going to be all of our big words tonight. And I want you to begin to think about the altars in your life. And and I want you to say, these altars that I set mark my decision to agree with God. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from youth. Notice the Lord doesn't change his mind about the intention of man. Our heart is still evil from birth, from youth. We want our, our se- self is first. Self is God. We have to uh, give our whole life on the altar. We have to burn every part of our old self to experience our new self. So God is not changing his mind about humans. He is offering a covenant. Genesis 9, 11. I establish my covenant with you never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth this is one of the first covenants we begin to see in Scripture with Noah and God will bring many covenants on the scene but they will never not involve an altar and they will never not involve a sacrifice it is binding He will never deny this part of himself. A covenant is a promise to me and you to be exactly who he says he is to us. Unchanging, unwavering, unconditional. Regardless of what you do or don't do, his love is never compromised. And he establishes this covenant with you. And in that covenant, we build an altar and we make a sacrifice of whatever it is that we are holding on to all the little g gods in our life because in the old testament when you when you gave a sacrifice you gave the entire animal to the lord you held nothing back not one bit why was covenant so important why is it so important that we understand covenant because it is the only relationship binding enough strong enough to nurture commitment and not consumerism let me explain this is why we've built the ground around marriage and and masculinity and femininity and the beauty of this covenant of intimacy of how it shows the gospel the intimacy of sex and marriage and submission and sacrifice inside a covenant of marriage, because it must be binding. If it is not binding, it will only be left to be a consumer-vendor relationship, you see? If it is not binding, if it is not legal, if vows have not been said, if sacrifice has not been made, if an altar has not been raised, then when you stop meeting my needs i'm out when this marriage did not turn out the way that i thought it would i'm out when you hurt my feelings and betray my trust i'm out you see that's that's consumerism And a covenant requires commitment. It requires follow through. It requires you stay, you don't walk. Even on the hard days, even even when the other person is being a jerk. And this is what God is showing us who Jesus is to us. He's staying. He has staying power when we do not. He is faithful when we are faithless, you see. Remember, God's just teaching you about Jesus. He's just teaching you about Jesus in knowing him you will know yourself so stop looking for yourself so much in scripture and look for jesus and then you know yourself change my whole bible reading game stop going to the bible looking for how to know yourself better go to the bible and know god and you will find yourself that's the way it works so god is showing you a picture of the covenant love covenant says Your needs are more important. Um, My needs. Sorry, let me say this right. (laughs) Because that would be horrible if I did not say this right. The relationship is more important than my needs. Covenant love says the relationship is more important than my needs. And I will adjust to you because I've made that promise. I will adjust to you. I will change to you I will serve you when you don't deserve it if not we're we're left to consumerism a consumer vendor you give me what I need until it doesn't meet my needs and I'm out because the human heart must worship something where we fail to build an altar we will raise an idol i want to give you a really clear note to remember because when i'm talking about when i'm talking about idols i could be talking about a lot of different things i mean when we talk teach about idols that's just anything that you're looking to to for happiness for blessing for satisfaction for hope. It's anything that you're looking to for all of those things other than God. That's an idol in its truest sense. So instead of giving you all the things that it could be, I just want you to know what it is always at the heart. An, an idol is always independence. If we, because we know Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So now we can say that the bottom of every idol, maybe that's my cell phone. Um, maybe that's gossip. Maybe that's food. Maybe that's exercise, but at the bottom of all that, it's really my independence, my, di- my desire to be an independent person and do things on my own terms. And God, maybe you can be God in compartment one, two, and three, but compartment four, I prefer to keep that myself. And so there's where we create an idol but when we put an altar instead this is where we give the whole of ourselves. an altar will always require sacrifice and it will always require your whole self not just compartments of yourself not just pieces of yourself the whole animal the whole you must be burnt and so the altar will always be intimacy Our idols will always be independence. Our altars are the heart of intimacy, honesty. Psalm 31, five through seven, says it like this. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. But I trust in the Lord. And I will rejoice, and I will be glad in your steadfast love, because you, because, because, why do I build this altar instead of an idol? Because you have seen my affliction. Because you have known the distress of my soul. And because you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy, but instead you have set my feet in a broad place. That is gorgeous. That is gorgeous. He knows you intimately. He knows where you hurt. He knows where you long. He knows your desires. He knows how deeply you want the situation to change. He knows how you battle fear and he knows how you battle shame. And he sets you in a broad place. He has not delivered you to the hand of your enemy because your enemy is not flesh and blood. Oh my goodness. Will you stop fighting the wrong fight, please? He's not delivered you over to people. He never will. Because your enemy is not flesh and blood. Your enemy is in the spiritual battle. So pick the right enemy. Fight the right fight. Your husband is not your enemy. Your ex-husband is not your enemy. The person who wronged you is not your enemy. Your father, your sister, what is not your enemy. <laughs> The Lord has seen your affliction. He knows the distress of your soul, and He has not delivered you to the hand of your real enemy. (laughs) He really hasn't. Christian, you win. We win. We win all of it. Eternity, forever, worshiping our God and Creator and Father. It's done the kingdom is yours it's all yours right now you've just got to decide you've just got to decide in order for us to decide we've got to send some stuff up in smoke Now, we could put down a myriad of things that you know in your heart is your personal idol right now. But I think, and I actually tried to write notes that went into all these different things. Like I had a whole, <laughs> a whole two pages of the idol of our schedule, and I studied that for a full day. It was a waste of time. It wasn't a waste of time. It was just not where the Lord wanted me to go because I think there's something here, deeply in this recesses of sexuality. There's something about the intimacy and the honesty of our body, of who we are. And so I feel like if we were just to take an inventory or a poll or just walk down the street, let's say it's AD 50 and we're in Greece, we would see the literal idols of sexuality, of human form, of femininity, of masculinity, Of how great people are and and I don't think it's any different in the United States in 2022 when we walk down the grocery aisle we see the idols of sexuality of how great people are when we scroll our phones we see the idols of how great people are we literally are paid in the 21st century to be an influencer we're paid to be an influencer to use the greatness of who we are, to influence people to also be great. Wear these jeans and you'll be great. Have over 100,000 followers and have a little blue check by your name, you're going to be great. So I don't think we're too far off in how we make our idol. Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. starting in verse 13 paul is speaking to the greeks and the romans and the jews and he's in greece and he says food is for is food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and god will destroy both of both of them the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. So, glorify God in your body. Paul is speaking to a very Greek culture right now, not so different than our culture. He starts off with, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, because this is the way that the Greeks saw sex and appetite that needed to be curbed. And if you were hungry, you had sex. It was, and then there was the other extreme, the super hyper-religious. Perhaps we shall call it the blue and the red states. <laughs> that said sex is bad, and if you've had sex, you're bad. Just don't do it. So you have these very two crazy views on either side, and Paul is coming to say both are wrong. Both are very wrong. And, he, and I just want you to know how radical what Paul is saying in this time this is radical stuff this actually falls on deaf ears in our in our culture but for this culture listen there was no single adult people and if you weren't married or making babies you were nothing as a woman you had no status no say this was your life this was your identity but it was also very familial I do hate that we've moved away from this so much I mean everything was very communal everything you were known by your family you moved with your family you worked as a family This was your definition so just kind of let that sit with you as paul is speaking to this the only way that you were having sex is with a prostitute because no one is single shall i take the members of christ and make them members of a prostitute never do you not know that he who is joined with a prostitute becomes one with her in body the two because the two shall become one flesh now you know where what he's quoting we've already been over this part but the key to this is in the word one flesh oh you've got to watch this so beautiful the one flesh the flesh in Hebrew is not just our physical tissue the flesh means an embodied personhood the Soma the body remember that the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek, it was, it was better than what we say now. To be one flesh with someone was to embody them in their personhood. We were, it wasn't just a receptacle, you know what I mean? Now let me help us even more. Acts 2, let's think about how Jesus said this. In Acts 2, Jesus says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he uses the same word here, the same translation of the word. So he doesn't mean I'm just taking a human receptacle and put, putting my spirit in them. He's saying I am donating myself I am giving of myself to you I am placing myself in you the embodiment of who I am in you now let this take on new meaning when we want to compromise sexually even in our thoughts to become one flesh is not just simply to have sex it is to embody a person to donate yourself to them and for them to donate their self to you. God made sex as a way of giving, of donating, of giving yourself so completely that it results in whole life oneness. This is the whole point of covenantal sex in marriage and intimacy. It results in whole life oneness you become a little bit of that person so for example I've been married for 20 years and there are times when I can be in a situation apart from Justin and you know maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago I would have just responded very independently as Casey you know whatever I thought was best in that moment but now when I'm in those moments I can hear Justin in my thoughts, in my heart, he is one with me. And I would think, you know, what would Justin do? I have, that works with my WWJD bracelet, doesn't it? Because he is right. A lot of times he's a peacemaker, he's a peacekeeper. He doesn't get real riled up about much of anything. Drives me crazy but it's also the the other part of me that has become one with him. So now he helps me make decisions even when he's not there. Now, can you imagine giving this part of yourself to a stranger who will never be a part of your life again? This is what Paul is saying. This is the sobriety he wants us to hold. And mothers, when we teach our children, you better be saying this, just like this, you are giving your whole life to this person not just a piece of you see we want to compartmentalize we're trying to separate something that was not meant to be separated your body it is against your body do you not know that your body is the temple yes god cares very much about your body did you know that He cares very much in a physical sense about what you eat and if you exercise and how to take care of it. But if you've compartmentalized all those things and you don't think those things matter, he wants you to care. Why? Is a body important? Because he came in a body. He sent his son Jesus as a body. That body died and that body was resurrected. He cares about your actual body, soma. But he also cares about the whole of you emotionally spiritually relationally physically this is why sex must never be done outside of a covenant because if it is it is only an exchange of goods think about that for a moment right now i hope you know listen to me this is not a judgment this is not a condemnation because i have shared my story with you and i have battled with sexual addiction for 20 plus years since i was a child before i even knew what sexual addiction was or sexual impurity was or any of this stuff about the temple i didn't know any of that and i battled with self-gratification masturbation as a child, as a teenager, pornography. I was sexually promiscuous. I was raped. I've had the victim and I've been the offender. I share those things in honesty with you because I have laid those things on the altar. They don't carry shame for me anymore. I don't live in condemnation of those things anymore. So if I can share those things in honesty and you can see that I've burned them up. Maybe you will see that this is for you too. Why did I make the compromise? Mm. Lots of therapy to help me figure that one out. But why did I make the compromise? At the end of it, I wanted to be independent. I wanted to be in control. And I wanted to control the lie. See, a consumer-vendor relationship has to do with service and goods. Somebody is setting a value. There's a cost. And so if you're having sex outside of marriage, which, by the way, I should have said this. I'm so sorry. But this word sexual immorality that Paul uses is very, very specific, and you have to know what he's talking about here. Forgive me. Sexual immorality is the word pornai, where we get our English word pornography, and it literally means any sex, any form of lust, any form of sex in your mind that is not with your married spouse. So that's heterosexual, homosexual, that's uh, out—you know, married woman with someone outside of your marriage, he's covering the whole gamut of sexual immorality. Now, why must it be done with covenant? Because if, if it is done as a consumer goods, then someone is setting a value. You are determining how valuable you are, and you will never, ever be free to see how valuable you truly are if there is a backdoor option. If this thing goes bad, if it doesn't work out the way I thought it would. If he doesn't if he's not who I thought he was. I've got a back door. I can walk out. And see <laughs> how are you ever going to know what you're worth? There. You say your cost very low. You see the consumer good situation. So Paul is saying, look, don't get physically naked remember naked is honest don't get physically honest and vulnerable with someone unless you can be vulnerable and honest with them in every other area of your life unless you can be naked and honest with them economically spiritually relationally financially don't get physically I mean, it's got to be a whole thing it's an embodiment of your whole person and he's also saying you cannot do this and hang on to your independence you cannot enjoy covenant like this and hang on to your independence. Because Jesus did not. Jesus, his, his altar was the cross, and he gave his whole self. His whole self. He didn't hang on if anyone who could have hung on it was him and he did and he held nothing back and he made the cross his altar to show you what it takes to be in this covenantal whole body love and as we uh, engage in sexual immorality we're sinning against ourselves because we're destroying our ability to believe that that's what that means to sin against your own self is to fragment yourself out in pieces to separate yourself out You can't see your whole self. This is the most damaging part of our sexual sin. The most damaging part of sexual sin is its ability to radically distort our honesty with self and others. Man was naked and honest and felt no shame. Man tried to be independent of God and became shame. Felt shame for the first time let's just talk about a few ways that the culture specifically I feel like has really perverted our intimacy our honesty with one another And i'm going to do this strategically so we're going to move kind of into what this looks like to break down this idol as a culture and speak into the culture and then how we build this altar this altar of intimacy so i'm just going to speak practically first behaviorally speaking what do we do if we find ourselves caught in lustful thoughts in habitual sin of pornography or masturbation what if we do if we are considering a sex with someone else who is not our married spouse well you can remember two words flee and cut <laughs> matthew 5 30 and if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off throw it away it is better you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell now that's jesus talking about sexual sins so that's the cut part cut it off be willing to be done with whatever is leading you into this The flee part was the command from Paul that we just read flee from sexual immorality. So I flee, I turn away and I run the other direction. I'm going to do the opposite of what I'm doing. And then I'm willing to take drastic measures. I'm willing to end that relationship. If I am dating a guy and he is asking me to compromise, does this mean I need to break up with him? Yes. Let me be clear as I can be. Yes. He's not ready to love you in a covenant. So, what are you wasting your time on? Why are you setting your values so low? All right, flee and cut. Let's look at how this works out. So, let's, say, let's talk to one of the first points cohabitation, sex outside of marriage. I can say that probably 70% of my clients who are female are actively engaged in sex. They love Jesus, they're calling themselves a Christian. And they are either cohabitating outside of marriage or they are engaging in sex and, and, they, and they feel regret and they feel shame. But let's do some serious fleeing and cutting here about this. And let's speak some truth to the people in your life who are struggling with this. Because the real bottom line of why would I even want to live with someone before marriage is you want to test it out, you want to make sure there's no back door, but in living with the person, you've created a back door you're playing house you're playing at this thing you're pretending you want to enjoy all the benefits of marriage without actually committing to marriage and if a man is asking you to do that bye that's your answer he wants the goods without actually promising to be committed to you for the long haul I don't think so listen singles I want y'all to marry and date like a Christian I want you to you marry someone because of their future self not on who they are today you marry someone you say I'm signing up for this journey with you I believe in who you will be not necessarily who you are today so will you marry the wrong person absolutely <laughs> this is not a question of marrying the right or wrong person this is not a question of waiting for the right or wrong person. The person you marry will not be the same person five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road. You marry for the future. You go on a journey with them and you say, we're not in heaven yet, so I don't expect you to be the hero of the story. I'm, I'm signing up for your, for your calling. I'm attracted to your calling. I'm attracted to what you want to be, who you, who you want to be, what you want to do. All of that sounds really fun and great to me. So be patient with the Lord. Know that He is good and He can meet your needs completely. Completely. Another way that our culture is really inundating sexuality is absolutely through video gaming and cell phones i think i'm just i'm just quickly hitting these because i just think they need to be said there's been a lot of really cool brain science around cell phones what cell phones do and what video gaming does but i just want to kind of give you a a synopsis so that you see that it's creating an addiction in our brains in our minds in the minds of our children And it keeps them in so when you think you have four parts of your brain and everything that you see in the message It has to go up through all the parts of your brain and get to here, this beautiful prefrontal cortex where you reason and you think and you hope So video gaming is here in the third and it completely shuts down the fourth So when your child is playing video games and on their cell phone scrolling or when we are on our cell phone scrolling We're not thinking with a whole full brain We're thinking with our reward center it's lighting up our reward center. That's what data has shown us. And, and our reward center can only hold a thought like that for about 25 to 30 minutes before it starts to become an addiction. So there's a word to perimeter. Mom, please guard the phone. Please do what you have to do. If, if, if Paul is saying it's this big of a deal, should we not at least put some drastic measures on the time that we are allowing our kids on gaming? Because this is what's happening. It's an artificial reality and so our young men are watching these games that they get to be the hero and they are believing in their third without a full brain experience that they are the hero but then they get out there with a real woman and they don't know how to be a hero they don't know how to protect her they don't know how to nurture her and care for her because it was all a game so and for us in our in our world that we're creating of social media can some of you just leave today can you just burn the phone Can some of you leave tonight and the Lord speak to your heart and say, on the altar tonight, I put Instagram. On the altar tonight, I put TikTok. I have got to have some perimeters around this thing. It is not worth it. It is eating us alive. And it's sending us this sense of reality it's not real it's a lost sense of reality so now i I can't even tell you the rise in female pornography addiction the rise in female masturbation and self-gratification i'm sorry if that word makes you uncomfortable but we got to deal with this listen if sex is for donating If if sex was created to be in covenant of donation and giving of yourself, then it does not work with pornography or self-gratification, why? That's a one-way consumer-driven gratification. It cannot be allowed to continue. We have to cut it off. It is the exact opposite of a covenant. Women, can I speak to us for a moment Sexuality is perverting our culture as we accommodate to the standards of pornography. Do you realize that as women, we are beginning to accommodate to the framework and the altered reality of pornography? Just because the culture is wearing leggings doesn't mean we have to. Just because everyone shows their midriff doesn't mean we have to. I'm asking you, lady, look at your body. When you walk out of the room every day, look in the mirror and say, am I honoring God with this neckline? Am I honoring God and men? Am I setting up men for success, to be a leader and be a protector and a nurturer and a hero? Or am I causing them? I know we don't want to feel that. This is real. Am I causing them to doubt? I know you're not responsible. You're not. You're not responsible for their feelings or their lust or whatever, but let's help a brother out. Listen. <laughs> Mamas, talk to your kids about foreplay. How far is too far? Well, we actually have the answer. <laughs> I've heard it preached that we don't. That's silly. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5:28 and 2nd 2 Peter 2:14 2, that even to lust to even lust, to have these thoughts in your head, in your mind, is the same as adultery. And then 1 Timothy 2, 9, Proverbs 5, 1, Proverbs 7, 1, it teaches us to not even provoke. The words are don't even provoke sex in the way you talk, in the way you dress, in your entertainment, in your humor. So how far is too far? far? Are you provoking it? Cause we're, we're called to cut it off way ahead of time. So this is just a gauge that I think parents is how I've taught my children. I hope this is helpful. Don't let your bodies prepare for what it can only be fulfilled through marriage union. Don't allow your bodies to prepare for what can only be fulfilled in a marriage so that you see. So single ladies, that's your call. That's it. That's when you stop. So if that's heavy petting, I don't know. I don't even know how you get around that as far as a man. You're guarding your man, right? You're guarding your man. So if he's preparing for something that can only be fulfilled in sex, you stop. You stop it. Because women, I promise you, you can do it a lot quicker than a man can. Easier. Because ours is not so much about the sex. Ours is about wanting to be accepted and affirmed and loved. Women, I love you. And God knows your, heart, your hurt, and he knows where you've been a victim, and he knows where you've been raped, and he knows where you've been. your sex has been used against you. He knows your affliction, and he has not delivered you over to your enemy. You actually have power to have self-control and self-awareness and shut this thing down. And the moment that you choose to make your shame or your regret or your need, God, you are not burning it you give your whole self to god and he will satisfy you he will satisfy you sexually intimately honestly you will have no need for this and you have so much strength and so much force to fight for the men to stop this thing and say no i I love you too much i care about you too much can we please please be mindful Of what we're putting into our minds through entertainment through media through movies through books because I feel like I'm so convicted you know I'm so convicted we don't want to be sexually immoral but we'll gladly watch you do it Christian we don't want we're not sexually we're not struggling oh but I'll gladly let you entertain me with you having sex on the screen I'll gladly read these stories of you having sex of you engaging in lust We've got to burn it out of us, and we are all sexual sinners. Let's just level the ground now. We are all sexual sinners. Let me leave you, I know our time is running short, I need five more minutes, I'm sorry, but I cannot not leave you with this last part because I've given you the behavioral and practical, mentally and emotionally speaking, how do we do this? How do we fight sexual sin in our culture? First Thessalonians chapter 4, you can turn there if you'd like, starting in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, for this is the will of God... This is the will of God. Ready? Very clear. Your sanctification. Now, at this moment, Paul could say anything. He could tell us all to be sanctified in some way. But what does he say? That you abstain from sexual immorality. This is why I'm going to talk on this, this this whole point, because this is important. He could have said anything that's keeping us from being sanctified and he pulls out that you will abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles watch this who do not know God knowing God is the pathway sexual freedom, purity, and intimacy. It's knowing God. Because Paul tells us right here, if you don't know how to control your body, if you're you're not being sanctified, if you're not doing the will of God, then you don't know. It's because you don't know God. And if you knew God, this would be different. You would be free. You would be liberated. So mamas, what are we going to teach now? I'm going to teach my daughter to know God. I'm going to teach my son to know God. And there is a universe of difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Christian, you can know about God for 40 years in the church, serving in ministry, but to know Him, to know Him is radically different. here's how you know him Psalm 139 23 here is from one sexual sinner to us this is David you want to talk about a man who struggled with his honesty and his intimacy struggled to burn on the altar his sexual sin it was David and look at this beautiful look how he speaks search me God know my heart test me and know my anxious thoughts See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Will you go home tonight and will you put this verse on your mirror? Will you actually write it out with your hand? I don't want it on your phone. I don't want you to type it. I want you to put it on a card with your hand, with your penmanship. I want you to tape it on your mirror. And I want you this week to think about this. Search me. Are you willing to to let God examine you? Are you willing to invite him into investigation? See, I fear that as Christians in a culture, we would prefer to write down information instead of invite investigation. Man, I love it when a line comes out like that. <laughs> That's tweetable stuff right there. We would rather write down stuff about God. We'd rather go to all the Bible studies and write down in our notes and journal and do all our therapy work instead of actually know him. <laughs> And he is saying, invite me to know you, not because he needs to know you. He doesn't need to know you. He knows your sorrow. He knows your affliction because he knows that you need to know you. So invite him to search you. And and the confidence for us is whatever he shows you, whatever he shows you, he already knows. Whatever he shows you about yourself, he already knows. He's just showing you a little bit, you know. He's just showing you, because he knows you can't handle all of it. Like, I'm just going to give you this bit. And then we kind of trek along, and we're doing good. We're like, I'm doing so good, God. And he's like, oh, yeah, that was just step one. (laughs) Ask him to search your heart, not your journal, not your service, not your friend's heart. Pull out what's inside of me. Because, you know, that's how he tests us. We think maybe we've struggled. We think maybe we've never struggled with anger. Until that one person. We think maybe we've never struggled with lust until that one situation. And so you're asking him to more and more search me, increase my understanding, bring this out of me. Maybe maybe I do struggle with patience. Well, I don't know that until I need to be patient. So we need to invite the Holy Spirit to constantly do assessment on us, to test and know our anxious thoughts, to see if there is offensive way in me. And this is, and this is what draws back to this, the Holy Spirit, the temple in you. Remember, there's only two things we can do to the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And so you're asking God if there's any attitude, not your actions, you're asking God if there's any attitude, if there's any motivation of my heart that is quenching or grieving the Spirit, will you reveal it to me and then lead me? lead me in the way of truth listen god is not going to force this on on us he is not going to force our truth he has shown us the way and now we have to apply it in order for truth to actually be wisdom in our life it must be applied because you can know a concept generally he's going to set this course for you and now you must follow he leads and we follow because he's done the work he has given himself totally his whole embodiment of self is on the altar sacrificed for you now let that let that capture your heart tonight let that be what draws you in to this life of self-control and holiness and advocacy for others you go speak truth to a woman you set her free you show her the value that is in knowing let me pray, Father God, help us to know you. Help us to draw in and ask to search us, test us, take us right to the anxiety, take us right to the fear, take us right to the shame. Help us, Lord, not to be looking around at others, but to see if there is something in me. And then, Lord, give us the strength, the community, the courage to follow you, that we trust you because you are the lamb that has been slain. You are the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. You have given your whole self to us, Lord, so help us to give our whole self to you in return.